Hello everyone, uh, Stavros Yanuka here with another episode of Wise Words. Our guest today is Dr. Eduardo Padron. Dr. Padron is widely recognized as one of the top higher education leaders uh, in the United States, uh, if not the world. Uh, Dr. Padron is known for having transformed one of the largest open access institutions of higher education in America, Miami-Dade College, uh, to create a national model of student achievement that has transformed the lives and careers of many underprivileged uh, young people. Dr. Padron has received many awards and recognitions for his work, uh, including the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which was awarded to him by President Obama in 2016. Dr. Padron revolutionized the role of two-year community colleges in the U.S., raising their academic quality while preserving their mission to teach underserved populations. By combining open access and excellence, Dr. Padron has made community colleges an important tool in delivering uh, social mobility and uh, justice. Dr. Padron was born in Cuba and was a teenager when he came to the United States as part of the Operation Pedro Pan. The initiative allowed Cuban parents to send their children to the U.S. alone, uh, Dr. Padron struggled in a school system that did not yet include bilingual education programs, but after graduating from high school in Miami, he attended Miami-Dade College and then the University of Florida to eventually earn his PhD in economics. Dr. Padron eventually became the president of Miami-Dade College in 1995, and he leads that great institution to this day. With that, I give you Dr. Eduardo Padron. Dr. Eduardo Padron, welcome to Wise Words. It's a pleasure to be here with you, my friend, and I want to tell you that uh, I have great admiration for you and what you do with Wise. I think you have uh, uh, provided a, a forum that allows to, to really deal with the issues that are important uh, in the world of education today worldwide. It's a global view, and I think that one of the things that I have learned by participating in WISE is the fact that what appear to be our problems are the problems of almost everyone else in, in the world, whether you are an advanced uh, country or a developing country, we all share the same challenges. And uh, I think it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity that, that for us to learn through the WISE Forum. So congratulations, it's a pleasure to be with you here today. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Padron, and, and I'm, I'm flattered, and, and, and you know that the admiration is, 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 is very much uh, mutual. Uh, perhaps we can start our, our conversation by, by having you reflect a little bit on your, on your personal uh, background and story. Uh, you were born in, in, in Cuba, if I'm not right, mistaken. Well, let me give you a brief uh, synopsis of my journey. Yes, I, I was born in Cuba, uh, and as a result of the Castro takeover, uh, the revolution in Cuba, uh, my parents uh, worked very hard to get myself and my younger son, my younger brother, uh, out of Cuba. So at age uh, almost 16, uh, my brother 12, uh, we were able to come to the United States as refugees. Yeah. And this has been home. Uh, so I'm a, what you call a Cuban-American. And uh, I think that uh, my story is not uh, in any way different from most immigrants who come to this country. It's one of a lot of effort and sacrifice and hard work. 
uh, to achieve what we understand to be the American dream. And uh, so very early, uh, I discovered that the only way to really achieve the American dream was through education. Without the proper uh, training, education, and skills that are required to be able to navigate uh, the, the, the American economy, uh, it would have been impossible for me to be sitting here with you today. Uh, I, I am very grateful to this great nation because it, opens, uh, it opened a lot of doors for me. And uh, again, uh, it, it is something that my mother uh, said to me when I left Cuba. She said, we may never see you again, but the one thing I want you to keep in mind is that uh, whatever happens, even if you go to bed hungry, uh, you cannot give up on getting a college education. Yeah. And that idea remained with me for, for, for my entire life. And uh, it's interesting because I never uh, trained myself to be an educator. Uh, my idea of the American dream was to get very wealthy. Yes. Okay. Uh, and uh, I think and, that's uh, most people's idea. You know, so so I, I, as a young, naive person, I said, well, let me study economics because that's going to prepare me for that. And I, all my degrees, all the way through the PhD, uh, was in economics. But uh, when I finished, uh, I was finishing my PhD, which was a good time in, in this country, and I had more than eight or ten job offers, I had accepted a job uh, with a DuPont company in Wilmington, yeah. Delaware, at that time the largest corporation in the world. It was an incredible uh, job opportunity for a young PhD uh, to work as an assistant to the uh, director of worldwide uh, planning for the, for, the, uh, for the company. And for six months, they sent me every day the Wilmington newspaper to my house. They took me there three times uh, to look for homes, etc., etc. So in the meantime, I got to visit my former professors at Day County Junior College, today Miami-Dade College. And uh, when I told him the great news, they looked at me and said, what do you mean you're going to go and join the corporate monster? You need to come back and pay your dues. You have to come and teach. Well, the guilt trip lasted for about three weeks. Finally, I gave up and I said, okay, I'm gonna come back and teach for one year and one year only. And then I'm gonna go and work for DuPont and make all kind of money. So I called DuPont and I said, this is what happened. So in a year from now, so if you're still interested, I would love to talk to you. Well, the real, uh, point of the story is that halfway into that year, I knew that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So well, bottom line, I never became wealthy, yeah. uh, but I'm the richest guy you'll ever meet because the amount of the satisfaction that I get from what I do, seeing the tangible results of my everyday work, it, it, is, uh, it has become my religion, my vocation, and uh, my passion. And, and you rose through the ranks from uh, teaching at, at Miami, well, at, at yeah. Dade uh, I have done every College to, to now being president of, of Miami-Dade College, yeah. which is the largest institution of yeah. higher learning in, in, in the U.S. Yeah, Miami-Dade uh, has the largest enrollment of yeah. any college uh, or university in the United States. It's also the most diverse in many ways. It, it's uh, mostly minority students. 
Uh, it's also very international, has students from 192 different countries. And, uh, but, but we have a very special mission. And I think the, you know, the community college is, which is, by the way, uh, the most important American invention when it comes to, to education. Uh, it's, uh, it's something that is becoming more and more relevant as we yeah. enter the 21st century innovation economy. Because let's face it, most of higher education around the world has been very elitist yes. for the longest time. It was yeah. instituted to educate the elite. And uh, it was fine all the way, almost through the 20th century, where just a few could go to university. And the majority of people, especially in America, could go into factories or offices doing mostly uh, you know, manual work, routine uh, work. Routine yeah. work and being able to earn a good wage to become middle class, to buy a home, put children to school, but the world has changed. Yep. We're going through the most important transformation in the world that has ever taken place. Uh, and uh, the nature of work, the nature of education, everything is changing very fast. Yep. So right now, uh, opposite to centuries before, uh, they need to get uh, some kind of college credential today. It, it is essential. Otherwise, yeah. you stay in a cycle of poverty for the rest of your life because the new jobs that are being created require skills that are very different, different yeah. from what workers used to bring. And uh, that's what we do at Miami-Dade College, is try to provide the average citizen the opportunity to acquire the education and skills that will allow them to navigate this economy because you, you take just a few years back, 50 years ago, uh, most Americans will go into a job and stay there for 30 years, retire with a good pension, and, uh, and you know, that was great. But today, most Americans change jobs about 10 times during their productive life. And in order to do that, you require a lot of flexibility, adaptability, you require skills that allow you to be uh, a, a, sol a problem solver and, and so forth and so on. The things that employers are looking for today. And those are skills that uh, we take pride in, in teaching our students today. And, and if I may ask, how do you manage the growth? Because as you said, most universities uh, are elite institutions. Mm -hmm. uh, if you talk to university presidents, they will tell you that they have to limit the growth because uh, of, of the amount of resources that are required to provide a quality education. So they will, they will explain the, the, the limits to their size by, by referencing uh, resource constraints. Mm -hmm. How do you, first, how do you respond to that? And, and, and second, how, how do you tackle that issue to the extent that it is an issue at, at Miami-Dade? Well, that's, that's a very good question. Uh, it, is, it is an issue today in, in the United States because uh, we know, based on what I said before, that we need to harness uh, the full potential of every American citizen. The innovation economy requires that everyone contributes uh, to, to our economy. And uh, as a result of that, we need to open up the avenues for, uh, for education for our people. It cannot be just a few that go to higher education. And that uh, will require courage from our political leaders, and that will require investment. 
Uh, part of the problem that we have seen is that many uh, decision makers in this country today look at education as an expense, not as an investment. Mm -hmm. And the most important investment that we need to make in America today, uh, and we have many needs, infrastructure, health, you could name it, housing, but none of that will be possible in the future unless we allow people to get the kind of education that will turn them into taxpayers, that will turn, the, that turn them into productive citizens that can really contribute to the economy. And uh, that's why open door institutions are so important. But open door institutions also have limited resources. And open door institutions, for the most part, are public institutions that depend on state legislatures uh, for their funding. Uh, in the case of my institution, we've been suffering from significant underfunding for several years now. Uh, and uh, it, it is something that worries us because part of, the, part of the game is that in order to really serve uh, the most people, especially the most vulnerable, those who come from low-income families, you have to keep the tuition low because they cannot afford high tuitions. You know, many universities in this country charge you $50,000, $70,000 a year. Uh, only the very wealthy can afford that. But the students that I'm serving do not have the resources to be able to pay that kind of amount. So keeping tuition low, it's important if we, in fact, we believe that it's our duty to educate and provide opportunities to everyone. Because opportunity changes everything. And uh, so, so in order to do that, we need to have the resources uh, to be able to do it. Right now, uh, most of our revenues are coming from tuition, not from government. Yep. It's not supposed to be that way. Uh, Florida statutes uh, at some point said that 75% of, of the cost of educating a student should come from the state and 25 from the students. Now has been almost reversed. Reverse, yeah. And uh, that's a very dangerous trend because uh, every time you raise tuition, uh, you are keeping uh, students out. Most of our students work and go to school. They cannot afford to be full-time students most of the time. So every time you raise tuition, is a difference between putting food on the table or going to school. Yeah. And that worries me. It worries me because uh, the future, uh, our future ability to uh, remain competitive in, in the world economy uh, will depend on, on, on again, uh, on covering the potential of everyone. I, I, I always say everywhere I go that, uh, uh, you know, talent is universal. And what's not universal is opportunity. And uh, I think it's our duty to provide uh, that opportunity to everyone because that's the kind of thing that nobody can take away from them. Once you have the knowledge and the skills, you can put that to work and be able to sustain your families and not have to depend on, on government welfare. Yeah. I, I've also heard you say, which, which I find I found intriguing, that, that higher education is the only industry that, that you're aware of that tries to limit its reach. <laughs> yeah, well, you have heard me say two similar things. I, I said two things. Number one, yes, higher education uh, is infamous, as you say, notorious yeah. uh, for that. But also, I keep saying that while we have made some advancement in the last couple of years, there's some more awareness, it's about the only industry that still to come into the, into the 21st century. And I say that uh, in many other ways, because uh, even pedagogy, 
uh, hasn't changed that much. Yeah. With the advent of technology, uh, when we're receiving students who uh, were born uh, with technology uh, that are so adept to all these tools, uh, to expect them to react favorably to a professor, no matter how great a professor that person is, how knowledgeable he is, standing before what we used to call a blackboard, today are smart boards, mm -hmm. uh, with a piece of chalk giving a lecture that the student can reach with one finger, probably more up to date and more advanced, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, it's not acceptable anymore. So uh, instead, I think we need to avail ourselves of technology, not as a substitute, but as a way of enhancing education. And we need to practice other things. I'm very big, for example, on project-based learning yep. because I feel that one of the things that industry is uh, expecting uh, workers to do today is to be problem solvers. And that takes a special attitude, takes special uh, attribute. And, um, uh, you know, one of the best ways to, to teach students to do that is by allowing them to put theory into practice by working on solving problems. Yeah. You take a sociology course, and if the professor uh, is up to it, you know, he will let the students identify what are the five top issues that are affecting this community? What are the five best challenges? And you let the students pick those challenges and work on them and try to bring yeah. solutions to them. But the same could be in chemistry, the same could be in almost yeah. any other field. And, you know, what I have seen is that the students who are engaged in the learning process are students who are retained, students who graduate, because they see the value yeah. of what they are learning being put into practice. So I, I think the application of knowledge should prevail in our classrooms today. Yeah. So, yes, uh, I again continue to think that education is the way of the future. If we really want to be able to advance. But at the same time... Uh, you know, I worry that it is, this is not moving fast enough. So, so we, I mean, I, I share some of your, uh, both the optimism and, and the concern. Um, we're here at the World uh, Strategic Forum in, uh, in, in your hometown of, of, of Miami. And, and I've been attending now for the last three years. And what I found really interesting is, is the degree to which education is now widely accepted as uh, an important part of the answer to some of the challenges that we are, uh, we are facing in terms of the economic disruption that we're seeing driven by, uh, primarily driven by, by technology. What would it take, though, to turn that acknowledgement, and, and a lot of the, the, the people acknowledging it now come from the corporate world, what would it take, do you think, to turn that acknowledgement into concrete steps and eventually tangible investments into the kinds of solutions that institutions like Miami Data are, are able to offer? Well, you know, I, I have been in the field for a long time, and I can still remember when the corporate world gave a lot of lip service to education. And I say lip service because they always believed that education was key. But from that to really participate, uh, to invest in education, is a long, long way. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it is drastically changing today, not so much from the public sector politicians and decision makers, but from the corporate world. Why? Because they are being impacted by a skill gap 
that is significant where they are not able to find the qualified people with the right qualifications uh, to be able to do the jobs that they have at their businesses. And today in the United States, there are close to 6 million jobs that are begging for qualified employees. And uh, many of these industries, and we heard today in the prior uh, forum, uh, two people from that industry, from the uh, aviation aerospace industry, they're concerned about not being able to find people with the right qualifications. Well, that industry is not different from every other industry in the United States. Uh, those industries are moving very fast. They are introducing technology at a very fast pace. Uh, the, the, the need for them to have, uh, whether it's manufacturing or anything else, to have people who understand that technology, who are uh, able to put it to place, uh, be innovative with it, uh, it, it, it is incredible the amount of jobs that are in that, in that field. And colleges and universities are not keeping up uh, with that demand, and that's part of the problem. Uh, on the other hand, you have a lot of very talented young people and other people that are not necessarily what we call young teenagers or early 20s or in their 30s, 40s, and, and 50s who are finding the need to upskill, finding the need to change careers, finding the need to get additional training, additional education. So you take an institution like Miami-Dade College and the mix of people of various ages is, is incredible. And they all work together in the classroom. It's, it's fascinating to see people in their 50s working with students in 18, 19 year olds and some in between. And uh, that's because they all have the same interest and that is how do they get the skills they need to be able to get the kind of jobs that will provide them an opportunity to, to have a good life, to have a decent life. And uh, that's uh, what many institutions need to realize. And uh, we at the college uh, have for, for a long time understood that it was our, our, our duty. Uh, you know, in a city like Miami, which has a, a great startup activity and entrepreneurship, uh, according to the Kaufman Foundation, uh, Miami is the number one city in the United States today in terms of the number of startups yeah. and so forth and so on. <clears throat> Miami is blessed uh, with a mixture of uh, immigra immigrants here that is bringing a lot of talent from other places. But again, that talent has to be developed and have to be harnessed. And Miami-Dade College, I think, has grown so big precisely because it's an institution that welcomes uh, these individuals. But besides that, uh, train them uh, to do the kind of things that, that they need to do in order to guarantee them a good job. And, uh, you know, it's a very unique institution. Uh, probably you cannot find in the United States a uh, higher ed institution that has had more impact in developing the leadership of its community than Miami-Dade College, even, in the, even at the forum today. Yeah. The two people that came on stage, uh, uh, Juan Curilla, who's Port of Miami director, and uh, the president of, um, of Carnival Corporation, whose chairman is uh, Mickey Harrison, who's a graduate of Miami-Dade. Yeah. Curilla is a graduate of Miami-Dade. Many of the people on the stage today uh, are graduates of this institution. And uh, if, you, if you look around where's the public sector or the private sector, it's hard to find any industry, any major law office, any major medical hospital. Well, starting with the mayor, the lieutenant governor, uh, the commissioner, the chief of police, the chief of fire, 
the state attorney, the public defender, the head of the of the airport, the head of the port, the head of the major hospital. Uh, and in the private sector, it's even more impressive. The architects who have designed most of these buildings, uh, downtown, uh, huge uh, buildings, yeah. uh, the engineers, the head of the major accounting firms, where is Deloitte, I mean, you name it, yeah. uh, are graduates of this college. But the point that I'm trying to make is not that. The point that I'm trying to make is that most of these people will tell you that if it had not been because of Miami-Dade College, they would now found in, in Miami-Dade College uh, the, the, the opportunity, the door of opportunity yeah. to get the training. You know, in my case, when I, I did here one year of high school and then wanted to go to college, and I used all my savings from three and four jobs that I had uh, to pay significant application fees to 10 of the most important universities in the United States. They all rejected me. Of course, I had no money to pay or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, so if it had not been because of Miami-Dade College, yeah. God knows where I would be today. You know, the irony in all of this is that they have all come back one by one to give me honorary doctorates, beginning with Princeton, Brown, and all of that, which is ironic. But, but it was the lack of recognition, and still today, of many of these institutions that, uh, as I said again, talent is universal. Give yeah. them the opportunity, and you'll see yeah. how everyone always have a way of rising to the occasion. There's a, there's a couple of things I'm, I'm intrigued about, uh, Dr. Padron. One is, I'm, I'm just curious, and, and please, if, if this is too sensitive a question, mm -hmm. don't, uh, you don't have to answer, but you've got an impressive roster of alumni. Mm -hmm. um, how many of those alumni are giving back to the college, and, and more importantly, how many of them are prepared to send their kids to the same college? Okay, that's, that's a wonderful question that I, I love to answer. Um, just uh, two weeks ago, we held our annual uh, Hall of, Alumni Hall of Fame event. This is an event where we uh, induct into the Alumni Hall of Fame uh, alumni that have distinguished themselves in various fields. So this year we have 14 of them in medicine, in law, in architecture, engineering, psychology, teaching, whatever. Uh, that event raised uh, about $2.2 million. There are not many events in this country, yeah. uh, one night, where you raise that much money. And that's because of the alumni. That's because we had uh, 129 corporations that participated you know, and donated to the, to the fund. And this is every year. Uh, the alumni, uh, we did not, uh, honestly, we did not uh, had an emphasis on alumni uh, until I became, be, uh, became the president of yeah. the college. Because I always felt, like myself, that the alumni had uh, uh, need to have a commitment and an obligation to support the institution that gave them an opportunity. So we began to create an alumni office and to be... And we have been developing that and developing that because we have hundreds, thousands of hundreds of thousands of alumni. We have now uh, at the college about 2.2 million uh, students. Yeah. So, so it's uh, the majority of them are here, but many of them are all over the world. Yeah. So, little by little, we've been reaching, identifying the alumni, which was a problem because since we have not kept records for a long time. 
it's a question of who you know, word of mouth. We do yeah. the record, we look at the record, and we see. Uh, so we they're bona fide uh, alumni, but but that has been uh, that has been a challenge. But we're doing very very well. Uh, our alumni uh, take pride in saying I'm MDC. Yeah, everywhere they go, and uh, it, it is something that that helps build the institution because with the decline in government funding, we depend yeah. a lot on corporate support and, and alumni funding. Now the second question was do the children of those alumni come? Many of them do. Okay. Here in America there is a strange phenomenon. Uh, the kids when they graduate from high school, they've been told forever by the counselors and everybody, you must go outside the city. It's your way to become independent, yeah. it's your way to be able to grow and so forth and so on. So many kids uh, choose to go out of town. Uh, but many of them, the majority of them stay here and, and they go to Miami, they, they go to other places too. But we find that many of the alumni uh, love the, uh, the college. They, they know that they will get a first-rate education. Most of the students who come to us uh, uh, are in the, in the track, which is the pre-professional track, the first two years of college. Mm -hmm. uh, they transfer to all universities throughout the country, from yeah. the Harvards and Yales to Princeton to you name it. Yeah. We have students going everywhere. Uh, and uh, so they get a, a great first two years uh, education and then they transfer. Uh, but many of them remain here and uh, graduate from us. We now offer baccalaureates for the last 12 years. Uh, and we decided to limit the number of baccalaureates to be areas where there, there is a big job demand. Yeah. So while other people complain about placement and about jobs and all that, most of our programs have upwards of 95% uh, placement rate, and the beginning salaries of our baccalaureates, be believe it or not, are higher than the baccalaureates of the universities. And people say, how come? And, and just for the benefit of listeners yeah. who, who may not be familiar with the uh, nomenclature of, of uh, U.S. higher education, the, the baccalaureate is the is the two-year or the four-year It's a four-year degree. It's a four-year qualification. Yeah, a four-year yeah. degree. Yeah. And uh, so many of the students who graduate with a four-year degree, uh, the, the, the beginning earnings, their salaries are higher than the traditional yeah. baccalaureate. And why is that? Because the programs that we have established are specifically uh, developed to, for, to, to have people transfer into jobs. Yeah. And uh, that work has taken us working very closely with business and industry in developing the, the curriculum having uh, exchanges with executives teaching in the program, uh, the donation of, of equipment and things to make the program relevant so they are being taught in the current technology, yeah. and very close working relation, relationship with the, with the business sector and industry. And that's what made these programs very, very relevant. That's, that's, uh, that, that's terrific. And it, it, one other thing that's highlighted by, by this conversation is is the importance of lifelong learning opportunities. Mm. Maybe sh share with us a little bit about how, how you approach that, that issue at, at Miami-Dade and what are, the, what are the sort of generalizable approaches one can think about taking to make lifelong learning uh, a reality? Well, lifelong learning is a reality whether we want to acknowledge that or not. Uh, precisely because of the nature of work 
And uh, one of the things, I always use this example. You know, um, there was a time when you graduated from college or university, and you would take all your books, you would donate them, and you would never touch a book again, right? Yeah. Well, if you talk to any medical doctor today, you talk to any attorney, you talk to any accountant, uh, they will tell you, like they tell me, that the amount of time they spend learning, updating themselves on the latest knowledge, the latest rules, the latest surgery, the latest whatever, mm -hmm. is immense. Uh, my personal doctor, my physician, tells me that he spends almost 50% of his time learning uh, new medical discoveries. He's in the hospital constantly going to workshops and around the world learning about different techniques and so forth and so on. The same is true of the lawyers, the same is true of accountants and, and every other profession. So uh, learning, lifelong learning in whatever mode you choose to take, there's a lot of online opportunities for learning today. Uh, and there are many other ways. It, it's important. At the college, we realize that and we feel that people of all ages feel a need to come back and take a course, maybe certification, maybe they need to get a license. Uh, and so forth and so on. Uh, today, certifications are, are gaining a lot of ground because most industries are, are requiring certification in different fields in order to be able to, uh, to get a job. And uh, these certifications are becoming very, very valuable and important. So we offer a lot of that. And, and you see people coming in their 40s and 50s, 30s, uh, coming into a classroom to be able to get the knowledge necessary to pass uh, these licensures or these certifications. And it's wonderful. And, and, and what we do is we partner with all kinds of businesses, uh, yeah. whether it's Facebook or whether it's Google or whether it's, you, you name it, uh, organizations uh, in trying to uh, uh, come to the college and, and work with us in, the, in bringing their, their technology and uh, helping us with lectures and things like that to make education more relevant uh, for the students. But lifelong learning is here to stay. And yeah. more and more people are going to feel the need to get up, to update their skills and knowledge. Absolutely. And I think, I think the message is that what, what you're trying to do is you're trying to make it easy for people yeah. to access that knowledge mm -hmm. in the, the, the manner that is, is, is most mm -hmm. efficient and effective right. for them. Absolutely. So not, not being too hung up about the precise sort of structure of the course or the... No. Uh, or, or the, the qualifications no. that's going to come out of Absolutely. it. Absolutely. You know, we have great, great universities in this country, probably some of the best all over the world. Undeniably. Yeah. And, and uh, what I think is sad with the knowledge and expertise within those universities, unless you enter as an 18-year-old uh, admission after a lot of competition, which is very hard. You cannot go and say, well, I'm going to go to University X and take this specific course, or I'm going to go and do this. That's, that's unheard of, because uh, most of their, their mission is to take care of that 18-year-old all the way through the completion of the bachelor's degree. In other words, there is not the openness, there is not the flexibility, there is not the opportunities for and there are exceptions in most of these universities for people of all kinds to come and just take a course or take uh, four or five courses, a certificate program or something. 
which I think it's depriving people of, of great opportunities because uh, they are the centers of knowledge. And I think we all have the obligation to open up our doors to every citizen to, to enhance knowledge. One last question, because I know we have to, uh, to let you go. Uh, it's a question that I ask all our uh, uh, interviewees, and, and it's if there's one area or, or, or item of knowledge that you think everyone in the world ought to, ought to have, what, what would that be? I don't know if it's knowledge or skill. I, I, would, or tell skill. You, I would tell you this. In the world we're entering, because we're still entering this new world, I think having critical thinking skills is the most important skill that anyone can have. Yeah. Because nothing is formal anymore. There is, you know, we need to have the flexibility and the adaptability to do a lot of things. And with critical thinking skills, I think it allows you to manage knowledge, to be able to discern between truth and and. and fake news, for lack of a better <laughs> yeah, word, yeah. Uh, and to do the kind of things that uh, make us free in more ways than one. And uh, so, so that will be my answer to, to, to your question. It's a good answer. Dr. Padron, thank you for uh, sharing your time and your wisdom with us. My friend, congratulations to you once again for the wonderful, exciting work that you do through WISE, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Absolutely. Thank you again. Great. If you're enjoying the Wise Words podcast and want to find out more about our guests and their work, as well as discover what else we do at Wise, you can visit us at www.wise-qatar.org backslash wise-words. And if you want to continue the discussion, compliment or critique us, you can find us on Twitter at wise underscore tweets or at wise underscore CEO, hashtag wise pod. We would also appreciate reviews on iTunes because it helps other people find us.